trying very hard to work through this quickly, but also explain it adequately. And really, as you think about Jeremiah 30 and 31, I think that one of the big ideas that comes through is this idea that God restores. And that, um, the idea that God restores is probably somewhat of a foreign concept to us, but the idea of us restoring things is not a foreign concept. Uh, we think of restored things all the time. In fact, in our society, restored things uh, many times are really cool. Uh, just uh, a couple weeks, well, maybe a couple months ago, my wife and I were out of state at a friend's wedding, my wife's friend's wedding, and we drove by a relatively old and kind of decrepit um, ice cream shop, and we were discussing what's that line between retro and cool ice cream shop and just it's, it's down the tube and it's about ready to close its doors. And there's this like really fine line, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but we think that you know restoring old things sometimes is really, really cool. That's why people like to restore old cars. So people very often try to find you know their old high school car and they restore it once they you know are able to do that. And, and God is taking something far more valuable in Jeremiah 30 and 31 than an old ice cream shop that's you know kind of on the verge of decrepit and retro or you know whatever your favorite hot rod was back when you were in high school. Or, you know, that house that's kind of fallen into poor management for the last 20 years and, you know, nobody's done anything to it and you're going in and you're restoring it. God's taking something far more valuable in Jeremiah 30 and 31. And he is saying, I am a faithful God and I have plans of restoring this to its prior glory. Restoring this to its prior purpose that it never measured up to because... The nation of Israel refused to follow me in obedience and faithfulness. And so Jeremiah 30 and 31 really is a passage of scripture that describes for us God restores the broken as a demonstration of his character. God restores the broken as a demonstration of his character. If you would take your Bibles, we're going to read through this whole text just so you're familiar with it, and then we're going to try and walk through it relatively quickly here. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, for he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, his yoke from your neck. I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall 
For I am with you, says Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. For thus says Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause, that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, with the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. All your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who ponder you, plunder you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, no one seeks her. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling place, and the city shall be built upon its own mound, and the place, the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who make merry. I'll multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord God goes forth with fury. The continuing whirlwind it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it. And until he has performed the intents of his heart, in the latter days you will consider it. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people, thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give them rest. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with kindness I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim. Arise, and let us go up to Mount Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnants of Israel. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. The great throng shall return. There they shall come with weeping. And with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from, a, from the hand of one stronger than he. 
Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young man and the old together, for I will return their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they were no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voices from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely, after my returning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I speak against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back these your cities. How long will you gad, will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use his speech in the land of Judah and its cities, which I bring back their cap their cap when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities to gather farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have washed over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to, re to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, 
Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Lord of heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hanamel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward from the hill Gareb, and it shall turn toward Goat. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it and to know how to live out the concepts and the truths that you're teaching us through your word this morning. In your name we pray. As he begins, he tells us that there's a promise of spiritual and physical restoration. And this is super important for the nation of Israel. Why? Because the nation of Israel has been given the commands of God. Time and time again, they've been given the commands of God. They've been told how God wants them to live. And they have chosen to walk away and to do their own thing. And God, time and time, come again to them and said, Be restored in your relationship to me. And time and time again, they have said, they persisted in their path of destruction. And so God comes to them, and he tells them, you're going to be taken off into captivity. You will no longer be in the promised land. You will be separated from me and from my promises. And this is the primary message that Jeremiah has been given to entrust to the nation of Israel and Judah. And he's telling them this over and over again. It's a message of doom and gloom. It's telling them just how bad things are going to get. And in the middle of all that, Jeremiah pauses in these few chapters, and in chapter 32 and chapter 33, and he tells them there's actually hope if you're willing to turn back to God. And so in verse 1, he tells them, I've been given a message from God, and this is a promise, and it ensures, it's ensured by the fact that it's being written down. It's often that, you know, if you're talking to somebody about a deal that you want it to happen, uh, what do you always say? Get it in writing, right? Because if you have it in writing and you go to the court, and you're like, see, we have this in writing. It's done correctly. We've got signatures. We even got a notary on here. What's going to happen? Chances are you have a pretty good standing in court, depending on, you know, what exactly the document says. But. And the idea is, this is what you're going to write down. This is sure. This is certain. I am going to make promises to you that are both physical promises and spiritual promises about the prosperity that will return to the nation of Israel and Judah. And so he goes on from there and he tells them he's going to restore Israel. He's going to return them to this place of great benefit and goodness. You see this specifically noted in verse I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. He goes on, and as he describes this, he tells them that he sees the pain that Israel and Judah are currently in. And he uses imagery that, you know, we don't really expect. He's describing Israel, and he's describing Judah as a man who is going through labor. He's like, why do I see all these men going through labor pains? 
describing the pain that they're currently experiencing and rejecting God as similar to the pain that is involved in labor. But you know what happens after somebody gives birth? I've never experienced this because I'm not a woman. But my wife and other people that have talked to me tell me that there is quite a bit of emotional rush that kind of makes you feel a lot better than you typically would have after you experienced that much pain. And so, you know, my wife delivers the baby on the 25th of November, and that's about 2.09. We get in the car, we're driving home at 5.30 a.m. It's not even, you know, a full three and a half hours later. And she's like, next time we should do it this way. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but that's exactly the kind of imagery that Jeremiah is using here. He's like, look at these guys in their pain. Like, these are men's men. And they're like, oh, I'm in pain, okay? And then he's like, but it's going to go away. Just like that, God's going to take away the pain. And all that pain and all the hardship that they experience in an instant will be taken away. Why? Because God's going to demonstrate himself faithful and he's going to care for the nation. Look in verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I'll break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, and they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Just, just almost as quickly as my wife's like, you know, in extreme pain, and I was teasing her last night. She was on a phone call with her family. I'm like, this time I was smarter than last time. I didn't ask her if every time she has a contraction that she wants me to stop and let her, you know, hold her thighs or do anything like that. I just kept driving, okay, because I got smarter. You know? I knew that she did not want me to stop while she was in transition, okay? And the idea is the same type of idea here. The, the joy that comes from being restored to God makes them immediately forget all the pain and hardship that they've experienced. And so he sees their pain, but God's going to bring a sudden end and he goes on and he's going to describe the joy of this pain leaving. He tells them as a result of knowing what's going to happen, he says, don't fear in verse 10. Don't be dismayed. Why? Because I'm going to save you from afar. It's going to be sudden. It's going to happen. And you're not going to see it coming. Your seed from the land of their captivity will be returned. You're going to have rest and it will be quiet. And no one shall make you afraid. And so God's making pretty astounding promises to the nation. He's saying, I have a plan to restore you. He moves on and he says, God will heal an incurable wound, demonstrating their unique relationship. He talks a couple of times about their wound. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. And just as he's used that imagery of childbirth and the pain just vanishing all of a sudden, he does a very similar thing, and he's describing a wound that's festering, that's, you know, just oozing yuckiness. And the doctors have tried everything that they can try. They've pursued every kind of medicine, whether it be natural or unnatural, or, you know, chiropractic or not chiropractic. They, they've pursued everything that they could possibly look at to cure this disease. And God himself has told them it's incurable. And what happens? He says, I, the Lord, will cure this wound. 
And when I do, my promises to you will be fulfilled. And so God will heal an incurable wound, demonstrating their unique relationship. He moves on from there, and he says, God will return them to their land where they will rejoice in him. Verse 17 kind of ends that first idea of the wound, for I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because you called out as an outcast, saying, this is, because they called me an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. And these people who have been taken away from their homeland, enemy troops have marched in, taken them away at sword point, and put them in different towns all over Middle East, they have no hope of being returned to their homeland. God comes to them and says, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tent and have mercy on his dwelling place. The city shall be built upon its own mount, and the, people, uh, the palace shall remain according to its own plan. And he describes for them that they're going to be brought back, and then he also describes for them that they're going to rejoice in him, and they're going to glory in Verse 22 really summarizes their unique relationship and the joy that will be found in this unique relationship when it's restored. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And so he tells them that the, the situation now is really bad. It's really poor. But God's not going to turn them away forever. And one day God will once again embrace them. God says, I have a plan to restore you both physically and even though the situation looks so very bleak right now. He moves on and he tells them that rebellion brings God's wrath. He does this in verses 23 and verse 24. And he's warning the people that they cannot persist in the same pattern. Otherwise, God's anger, God's wrath will catch them. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, with continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart in the latter days you will consider he's telling them God's anger is directed at the sin and at the sinner and so one must find a way to become righteous before God otherwise one can expect God's wrath he tells them in addition God's anger fulfills its purposes it will not return he says until he has done it in verse 24. God's anger will fulfill its purposes. And God's primary purpose in being wrathful is what? That people would turn once again to him. God's wrath then is intended to turn people's hearts to him. He then begins a section where he describes the fact that he's going to restore the nation of Israel. And he tells them that he's going to restore them in a couple of different ways. He's in many ways, he's repeating the same types of ideas that he's already described in the previous verses. Jeremiah has been longing for this promised restoration. And as he longs for this promised restoration, he also notes that it's going to include a few aspects. He notes that there's going to be relationships that are restored, there's going to be homes that are restored, and the laments are going to be turned into times of rejoicing. These are concepts that we're familiar with. God's going to be their loving God. 
verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth into the dances of those who rejoice. It's a complete paradox from what we saw last week. If you remember last week, as he was describing Israel in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he was not using the terminology of virgins to describe the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah. He called them harlots. And now he's saying what? He's taking those same people and he's restored them. Because God alone has the ability to restore relationships. And he's telling them, I'm going to restore your relationship. And it's not founded upon anything that you could do. It's built on, it's based upon the fact that I am a loving God and I can do this. And God anticipates and anxiously awaits that they will rejoice in him. And he talks about the fact that they'll come with dances of those who rejoice. Not only that, but he tells them that they're going to have their homes restored as well tells them that their homes are going to be restored and when their homes are restored and they return back to their homelands that they're going to rejoice. It's a cause for praise. But not only is it a cause for their praise, it's also a cause for the nations to come before God and praise. And so the nations are going to come before God and praise. And God will satisfy the nations through his faithfulness. Verse 14, he says, I will satiate the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. And so the nation, along with the nations surrounding them, will be restored. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of the, of the one stronger than him. So he's calling the nations to realize and to rejoice in God. But you can imagine with me that the current doom and gloom message that Jeremiah has primarily been giving would be one that is quite discouraging. If you're constantly being told by a pastor or a religious leader that your future does not look good, you're going to go into captivity, you'll be taken away from your home, you'll serve as servants and slaves in other lands, and you won't get to see many of your family members again, I think I'd be a little bitter. And that's what he's describing here. And he tells them that this is this is a situation. And he describes what the immediate response is. Verse 15, And thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children. Why? Because they are no more. Why? Because they've been taken all over. And what does God say he's going to do for this? He says, While Israel is in mourning, because their cities and their countries are empty, because their places where they keep their livestock are empty and the palaces are empty, he's going to once again fulfill his promises. He's going to see to it that the people are restored to the land. 
God's going to see to it that there is reason once again for thanksgiving. But all these promises are based upon Israel's repentance. And so he's calling the nation to repent. He's calling the people to come before him and to acknowledge their sinfulness and to receive the forgiveness that God brings. And so in verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, They shall again use his speech in the land of Judah and in his cities. Then I bring back their captivities. The Lord bless you, a home of justice and mountains of holiness. And there uh, shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks, for I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and the seed of beasts. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to flip, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days... They shall say no more. Say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every one, every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And so he's telling them, "You have to repent." God makes a single plea with the nation, and it's, it's really summarized quite nicely with a series of words that he uses to describe their repentance. He tells them to set up signposts, to make landmarks, to set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, turn back. He's calling them to consider and to return. And with this repentance, they will have the nation restored. The individuals will be responsible for their own faith. No longer will they be confined to what dad chose to do affects them. Rather, there will be the ability for each individual to choose their own faith. But more importantly, than a lot of them we've already seen, he tells them there's a new promise that's coming. A new covenant that is coming. And this is the promise that Israel, many in Israel, still long for because they don't know that it's been fulfilled that God is in the process of fulfilling this covenant to them and seeing that the Messiah has come the first time and is coming once again. And so he tells them there is coming a day when I'm making new covenant with you. And in verse 33 and verse 34, he tells them what this is going to entail, what this is going to include. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. He says he's going to drastically transform their very lives. God's going to implant upon them the truth, put it inside their very hearts. So much so that they don't have to be taught the truth of God's word anymore. God's forgiveness will be assured to them and their relationship
relationship with God will be restored. God plans to establish new covenants with Israel. God describes his future covenants with his people. He's going to put his teaching on their hearts. He's going to be their God. They'll have no need to teach each other. They'll have forgiveness of sins. And God will provide fully for his people in this coming year. But he concludes, and as he concludes, he tells them that God himself is the one who will guarantee his restoration. And this is where he really hammers home the idea of why can we trust God? Why should Jeremiah's people that hear this message back then choose to trust God? That he's actually going to do this. Because Jeremiah is not saying this is going to be done in the next week or the next two weeks, and it's something that's, you know, a short term, you know, most of us could wait two weeks for a big promise, right? We did that, like, all the time we were growing up, waiting for Christmas to come and, you know, counting down the days until we got to open that Christmas present. You know, we were, like, 99% sure that's what was in that box, but we had to open it to be, like, completely sure. But it's, it's not that type of wait. This is hundreds of years that they're waiting for these promises. And God tells them, you can trust these promises. Why? Because you can trust my character. And he points them to how they have seen God's character. In verse 35, he begins to describe the character of God. And he says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. He says, does the sun come up every morning? Does the sun go down every morning? Does the moon come up every night? Do the stars come up every night? Is this orderly and done in a way that is predictable? Yes, so much so that months ahead of time we know what exactly will be the time of sunrise, exactly what time you can shoot that buck, right? You don't have to worry about, you know, whether or not that'll change. That's just set. He says, if that is certain, my word is certain. He goes on and he says, if those ordinances depart, if those, if those predictable parts of nature go away, then you can stop trusting me. Then you can choose to go it your own way and just live like you've lived, Israel and Judah. But if the sun keeps coming up as it does, it keeps going down as it does, and it's predictable like it is, living by faith. Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel and all that is they have done, says the Lord. And, and so what God is doing is he's saying the order of the universe is sustained by God. The certainty of his promise is ensured by his character. And his character is what keeps orders of this world consistent. And as a result, you and I can trust him. God ensures that his promises come to pass. And he, in fact, makes additional promises to the people. He tells them that the nation of Israel will be restored, and in fact, the city of Zion will be rebuilt. And he describes aspects of what it will look like. These are long-term promises. But he says, my character is going to see to it that these happen. You know what? These promises are still being waited for by the nation of Israel. God has not fulfilled them yet. 
But does the sun still rise on time? Does it still set on time? Yeah. So what do we know? We know that God will fulfill his promise. And so we can rejoice in the fact that God is faithful, even though we don't understand everything. Even though we don't understand and see everything that God is doing, we know that God is faithful. So God will one day renew his blessing and favor to his people. And so as we think about application from this rather long passage of Scripture, God is a God who restores. And this restoration is not a restoration that's, you know, two weeks away, as Jeremiah is preaching, and he's like, you know, you just got to wait another, you know, what is it today? The 11th? No, this is the 12th. It's the 12th. 13 more days till Christmas. You can make it, and you can believe that your mom and dad actually loved you and provided what you thought they were going to provide you. Maybe they're not. Don't. I'm not making any guarantees for your parents. I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> supply any presents that you don't get that you thought you were going to get. It's not a short-term, you know, wait and see, and, you know, if you don't get it, you go get a job and you make up for it, right? This is hundreds of years, and God's saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise. Israel is not done. And if, if God can make a promise that is now thousands of years after it's been made, and he says, I'm still going to fulfill that promise, I'm still going to keep that promise, then when God makes promises to you and I, how does he want us to respond to those promises? And the answer is that you and I must trust God's promises. Why? Because God is faithful to his word. We trust that the sun will go down and it will come back up tonight and tomorrow morning. And so we rejoice in him, we believe that his word is true, and we obey him as his word instructs. The passage also talks about God's wrath. And God's wrath is going to accomplish its purpose. Either it will destroy the subject of its wrath, or the subject of its wrath will turn to him. And as we think about the fact that God is an angry God with sin, it should cause you and I to examine our lives and to say, where do I need to repent of sin that separates me from God? Maybe you've never received Christ as your Savior. If so, you need to repent and trust Christ for your salvation. Perhaps you're a believer and you have not been living as you should. Perhaps some sin is being hidden in your life and God wants that to be dealt with as well. And then finally, we rejoice in God's revelation of himself to you. <laughs> Jeremiah tells the people that there is coming a day when they will know God and his word will be written on their hearts and they will have complete knowledge of him and there will be no need to teach. We still need to be taught. I need to be taught. I need to be reminded of the character of God on a regular basis. Why? Because we are frail and we are sinful people. And yet God's spirit works in our lives. The word of God works in our lives. Prayer works in our lives. The fellowship of other believers works in our lives. And all these things together provide us a reason to rejoice in God's revelation of himself. So you and I trust because God is faithful. We repent because God's anger will accomplish its purpose. And we rejoice in what God has revealed to us, knowing that he's doing so to make us more like his son. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a trustworthy God. 
and that we are able to depend upon you and trust in you in times of uncertainty, in times of doubt. And that during the season where so many of the times we talk about hope, we can rejoice in the fact that you are a God who has not changed. And just like Jeremiah's day, the people were promised, hope is available. Hope is coming. Yet we look at your word, and 2,000 years later, these promises are not fully fulfilled to the nation of Israel. And yet your word was true then, it is still true now. We pray that as we go through this Christmas season and we're reminded so often of the fact that there is hope in the birth of Jesus Christ. But while it may seem distant and it may seem foreign to us at this time, that we would be willing to trust your word and live in faith.